Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each of us. Peace be with you. Friends, our first reading for this weekend is from the utterly fascinating, often confounding book of Daniel. In fact, it's from the last chapter of the book of Daniel. Can I encourage everybody, if you have a chance, sit down this week and read through the book of Daniel. It's a little puzzling, it's a little dense, but read through it, get a sense of it. Because it's fair to say the book of Daniel had an extraordinarily powerful influence on the first Christians, on those who are trying to understand who Jesus is. It provided for them a most important template for understanding the significance of Jesus. So for us as well, 2,000 years later, this book is still of great significance. Now, Daniel is an example of what they call apocalyptic literature, which I know in the ordinary uh, understanding means uh, end of the world. But apocalypse, apocalypsis means literally a pulling back of the veil, of the columna in Greek. That's why when they translated apocalypsis into Latin, they got revelatio, pulling back the vellum, the veil. And so apocalyptic literature is not primarily about the end of the world. It's primarily about revealing something, showing, if you want to put it this way, a new world. Now, the book of Daniel is famous, of course, for its memorable narratives. Think of Daniel in the lion's den. Think of the great story of the three young men who were thrown into the fiery furnace only to survive through God's grace. Think of the wonderful story of the handwriting on the wall. You know, I think the very young Billy Graham often used that story as his uh, evangelical starting point. The story of the rape of Susanna, which in some ways functions as the first uh, detective story in, uh, in Western literature. So the book of Daniel is famous for these wonderful narratives. But it's also a book of visions and dreams and their interpretation. For Daniel is something like Joseph in the book of Genesis, and indeed Joseph in the New Testament, because he's an interpreter of dreams, someone to whom God spoke through visions and dreams and whom God gave the capacity to read these uh, visions. So in the second chapter of the book of Daniel, we hear of a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the, is the king of the nation that now has, has brought Israel into exile. Daniel is taken away as a young man, and he's coming of age within the court of, of the king. So he's an outsider, but he's also becoming well-known as someone who's very brilliant and an interpreter of dreams. Well, anyway, the king has a dream, very peculiar, about a statue made of a variety of substances. Its head is of gold, its breast and arms are of silver, 
its belly and thighs of brass and its feet of clay. And by the way, our expression clay feet, feet of clay, comes from this uh, image. Then, as the dream goes on, a stone is hewn from a mountainside. And it's not cut by human hands. It's mysteriously hewn from the mountain and is hurled at the statue, destroying it. Okay, that's the dream. You know what I love about this? Like most dreams, it's weird, isn't it? When you have a dream, it's very rarely you know, lucid and clear. They're, they're just intriguing and weird and, and troubling. So here's a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. We hear that none of his wise men and soothsayers could interpret the dream. But they heard about this kid, about Daniel, the Israelite, who had this special gift, and he is called upon. And with great confidence, Daniel lays out the meaning of the dream. He tells the king, the statue stands for a series of kingdoms that would follow one upon the other until they would all be succeeded by a kingdom established by God, not made by human hands. So the various elements mean that one kingdom would succeed another until they'd all be destroyed and then replaced finally by God's kingdom. Okay, now go to the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel and you'll find this truth is reinforced because Daniel himself has a dream of four great beasts coming up out of the sea. The first like a lion, the second like a bear, the third like a leopard, and the fourth, a terrible animal with ten horns and teeth like iron. Again, it's a dream, isn't it? It's pretty strange. Then, as it goes on, we hear this. And this becomes now classic in the literature of, uh, of biblical people. Then the Ancient of Days, that means the Lord God, took his throne and thousands ministered to him. The four beasts who had come out of the sea had their power and dominion taken from them. And then Daniel sees, listen, one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He arrives at the throne of the Ancient of Days and is given, I'm quoting again, dominion, power, and glory. And then he's told that all nations will serve him. Wow, we have to unpack this now. It's a very important text. Once again, we have a reference to the four kingdoms that will succeed one another and a final kingdom, not of purely human origin, that will come to be. And at the head of it will be a heavenly figure, but who is one like a son of man. It's fascinating, isn't it? So these four worldly kingdoms will arrive and then collapse. They'll be succeeded by a divine and human kingdom. So the Ancient of Days on his throne, coming on the clouds of heaven, but is one like a son of man. That's a bit like the rock, right, that's not hewn by uh, human hands. Strange, puzzling. But these two images confirm one another. I think it's fair to say that those who would have heard Daniel wouldn't quite know what he's talking about. Something's being revealed here, remember Apocalypses, but it's not quite clear what. Now, let's move on. When will all of this take place? Here we move to the 
ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, which recounts not so much a vision, but a direct angelic revelation. So Daniel, like all pious Jews, had received the tradition from the prophet Jeremiah that the restoration of Jerusalem and Israel would happen after 70 years. So keep in mind, Israel is taken away now in the Babylonian exile. It was the most traumatic event in the history of Israel. I've said, take September 11th and multiply it by a 1,000, and you get a sense of what it meant for Israel to be conquered, the temple to be destroyed, the leadership carried off into exile. So this tremendous trauma, Jeremiah is writing and speaking precisely at that time. And he prophesies that after 70 years, this new kingdom would arrive, Israel would be restored. So Daniel, like all pious Israelites, is wondering, well, what gives? Because the 70 years have certainly passed. Here it's a bit like, remember the promise that David's kingdom would last forever. But see, David's line ended at the Babylonian captivity. And so people thought, what gives? Is God's promise not going to hold? So anyway, Daniel is now concerned about this. Who appears to him? The angel Gabriel. By the way, keep him in mind for a little bit later in the biblical story. The angel Gabriel will play an important role in the fulfillment of all this. But Gabriel tells him that this means 70 weeks of years. Keep in mind, too, the the, uh, ancient Israelites loved to play with numbers, number symbolism. So the 70 of Jeremiah means, we hear, 70 weeks of years, which means 70 times 7 years, which means 490 years. Okay, let's put it all together now. What would pious Jews who had been studying the book of Daniel be expecting? They'd be expecting four wicked kingdoms to rise and fall before a final kingdom would be ushered in. Furthermore, they'd be expecting this around 500 years after the Babylonian captivity, which took place between 587 and around 500. Now, put those pious commentators in the first century, around the time of Jesus. What had they seen? They had seen four great kingdoms emerge. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. Moreover, they knew they were living just around 500 years after the captivity. Do you see now why messianic expectation was so fevered around the early first century? You know, some people say, oh, well, you know, Israel was always expecting the Messiah. Yes, in a way that's true. But you see, Given the book of Daniel, why precisely at the time of Jesus, there was such a great messianic expectation. And then what happens? Out of the hills of Galilee comes this prophet who is preaching the kingdom of God. See, don't render that too abstract. See, we, we're at a 2,000-year remove from it. So we say, oh, that means moral reform or something. No, think of a first-century Jew Having read the book of Daniel, having seen all this happening, and now comes this charismatic prophet who says the kingdom of God is arriving. Do you see how he is taken to mean the fulfillment of the Daniel prophecy? Any doubt on this score? 
Call to mind the words that Jesus himself spoke to the Sanhedrin. Remember, he's arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin. He's directly asked, are you the Messiah? Now, again, you're a Jew of the first century, and you Messiah, you're thinking Book of Daniel. What does Jesus say? I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Ah, he's directly citing Daniel chapter 7. What's he announcing? He himself is the human divine figure who, after the fall of the four kingdoms, would be given dominion. Listen, everybody, this is the apocalypse. This is the great unveiling of a kingdom not made by human hands that succeeds a series of fallen kingdoms that has a dominion that will last forever. What's he talking about? but the kingdom of the church. Jesus himself is this figure. The church is his mystical body. The church is not a political organization, not a club. It's a kingdom not made by human hands. Will it be opposed by the kingdoms of the world up and down the ages? You bet. It it always has been, still is. Will it be finally triumphant? Yep, gates of hell can't prevail against it. Do you see how the great task of the church, up to and including our time, is to continue to pull back the veil and to reveal this great truth? And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.